0: You're listening to the Brandon Women's Bible Study Podcast, led by Leslie Ann Jones. Hey, friend, it's Leslie Ann. Hope you're having a good day today. This week in Bible Study, we cover week 9 in our study of 1 Samuel, which is chapters 25 through 28. This is David's second and third flights from Saul. In these chapters, though he is running for his life again, We see that we who believe, the people of God, we need to heed the word of the Lord who speaks. Though it is folly to those who are perishing, it is life to those of us who are being saved. This teaching covers the material found on pages 124 to 141 of the Learner Workbook, which is available for download from thevillagechurch.net. You can find out more about our local Bible study in Brandon, Mississippi, by visiting leslieannjones.com king. Okay, well, last week was fun. It was a doozy, right? As we've already talked about. And I'm kind of tired of thinking about everything that David went through. Are you? Tired of thinking about all the murder attempts, all the running, trying to get away. So, I can't imagine how he actually felt. But we do get some taste of it here we start to see him wearing down a little bit in these chapters today Saul had put David through the ringer. he's throwing spears at him he's chasing him all over the country he's killing priests because they helped him he is just hunting him relentlessly and I'm guessing that these days are not part of David's highlight reel like when he's looking back on his top 10 moments of his life these these are not it these do not count um So we ended last week with David facing the temptation to end it all by killing Saul. Because then it would be over. He would be king, theoretically, and everything would be fine, right? But he chooses instead to take the path of righteousness. And he ends up deciding to trust the Lord instead. And Saul relents temporarily, as we see in these chapters. It doesn't last long, right? It's apparent that Saul has not given up at all. He has only paused for just a minute. Long enough to give David a breather, I guess. And we see that when we pick up in chapter 25, David is again tempted to take matters into his own hands. But this time it's not Saul. This time it's a guy named Nabal. And disaster is just around the corner. But through it all, through all of these verses, we can see God clearly at work in the background. He is orchestrating events. He's continuing to provide everything that David needs, even forgiveness and grace. First Samuel starts with a time in Israel when the word of the Lord is absent. The word of the Lord has not been spoken in Israel in a long time. But God breaks the silence with Samuel in the temple. He calls out to him and it says, And the word of the Lord came to all Israel when Samuel spoke it. But now we start these chapters and Samuel is dead. And so the question is, does the word of the Lord still speak? Is the word of the Lord still there, even though Samuel is now dead? And I think that what we see in these chapters is that the word of the Lord is alive and active, even though Samuel is dead. And the warning, the message is to listen. Listen to the word of the Lord. Submit to it. Humble yourself before it. Because, like it tells us in 1 Corinthians, the word of the Lord is folly to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to those of us who are being saved. Now, that's one of those New Testament verses that we cling to, right? But it was true for them then. The word of the Lord speaks, and it is for us to listen to the word of the God who speaks. It is life, and it is truth. It is hope. It's our defense against temptation. It convicts us of our sin. It encourages us when we are weak. It sustains us in the wilderness. The word of the Lord is all of those things to us. But we have to listen for it. And we have to seek it and know it so that it can take root in our hearts and change us from the inside out. So we start in chapter 25, verse 1 with Samuel dying, but he just gets this passing mention. Now Samuel died and all Israel assembled and mourned for him and they buried him and his house in Ramah. So it's the end of an era because not all did, not only did Samuel bring back the word of the Lord to Israel, but he's the last of that long line of judges that we read all about in the book of Judges. He's the last. And no longer is Israel going to have any judges. Now they have a king. They don't have a very good king at the moment. But he's on his way out, right? So Samuel's the last of the judges, and his death is the final page in that chapter of history. So it only gets a passing mention here, but it's good for us to know that he's dead because he's going to come back later on in the story in a really unexpected way at the end of this week's lesson. But we'll talk more about that in a little bit. So Samuel is dead, and David is hiding in the wilderness. So in verses 2 through 3, it says, David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, which we'll come to find out means fool. So, I mean, who names their child fool? Does anybody? Like, you're choosing your names. You're looking through the baby book. What do you pick? I know I'm going to name him fool. No, you don't do that. And so this is probably... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> probably like not his actual name, but maybe his name was something close to it. Okay. So it was close enough that like a little ha ha play on words. Okay. So the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. So let's talk about Nabal. He was a Calebite. What do we know about Caleb? Does anybody remember his story from the book of Numbers? Caleb and Joshua were some of the ones who went out to spy the land, right? Like they're wandering in the wilderness, and Moses sends out a group to go check out the land. And he's like, go check it out. See if it's a land flowing with milk and honey. See what the cities are like and come back and tell us. So they go, they come back, and like 10 of them say, "Mm, we totally can't take those people. But Caleb and Joshua say, no, we can. We can because the Lord is on our side and the land is great. We should definitely go do this. But what do the people of Israel do? Did they listen to Caleb and Joshua? No, they listen to everybody else. And so they, then they were punished for their unbelief. They had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years because they refused to believe. So Caleb is one of the good guys, right? He's one of the faithful. He is righteous and he's full of faith. And Mabel is carrying on the tradition, right? No. No, not so much. He is not living up to the family name. Instead, he's trashing it. My text says that he was harsh and badly behaved. What Does your say anything different? What kind of a man is he? Mine says surly and mean. There you go, surly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Harsh, evil, okay, so the message, I looked up several. The message said he was brutish and mean. HCSB, harsh and evil, crude, that's the New Living Translation, crude and mean. He sounds like just the kind of guy you'd want to get married to. Lots of fun. So if he is surly and mean in his business dealings, how do you think he is in marriage? So what kind of treatment do you think Abigail received at his hands? But what do you think it was like to be married to a man like that? And how does a girl like Abigail, who's beautiful and discerning and wise, end up with a guy like him? Because she didn't have a choice, right? She didn't get to pick the guy. The guy was chosen for her. And even though he's wealthy and he's got all this land and all this money, he is man is not a good guy. Verses 4 through 8, David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go up to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they'll tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. So when the sheep shearing happened, it was, a, it was like a big party. It was a festival kind of day. So there was a party going on, and we know there was a big party going on, because later on, when Abigail comes back from averting the disaster, we find out in verse 36 that... Nabal was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. So it's not that he didn't have the resources to help David's men. It's not like he was short on supplies. He just didn't want to. He did not want to help David. But in verses 4 through 8, three times David says, peace, peace, peace. We're coming in peace. We mean you no harm. We mean peace. And they're coming on good terms. And the request is that Nabal help his men. Why? Why? Because David's men have been helping Nabal's men in the wilderness. His um, shepherds, they've been kind of hanging out with them. And what's really going on here is that David's downplaying the whole situation. He said, hey, we didn't, we didn't hurt you when we were in the wilderness. But is that what really happened? What kind of a report did the servant give to Abigail later? What did he say that David's men did? He said basically, that this is um, in verses 14 and following, that they were serving as guards. It says they were like a wall between us and the wilderness. They were protecting them. They were guarding them. They were taking care of them. So that no harm came to Nabal's flock the whole time that they were out in the fields. So really the only reason that Nabal has to celebrate this sheep shearing is because David's men have protected them. That's why he has so many sheep to shear because David's men have kept them from getting taken by things like lions and bears. <laughs> but David doesn't tell Nabal any of that. He's just said, hey, we've been good to your people. Can we have a little bit of this feast? Can we have a little part of this, please, to be included? But how does Nabal react? Like a toddler. Mine. Mine. So David is peace, peace, peace. But Nabal is mine, mine, mine. No, no. Why would I take, this is verse 11, my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed for my shears for my men, and give it to somebody I don't know? Who is this David kind of guy? So first of all, Nabal makes the men wait. It says in verse 9, when Nabal's young men came, they said all this in the name of David, and then they waited. So he makes them wait. And then he answers them with scorn. He has no regard at all for David, none. And how does David take the news? He turns the other cheek and walks away. Not so much. He is furious. Verse 13. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. So we're done with peace, peace, peace. Oh, we're on to sword, sword, sword. Let's get him. And it seems a little, uh, maybe just a tiny bit of an overreaction. Just a little bit like, "Mm, you insulted me, so I'm going to kill you and everybody in your house. (laughs) Don't mess with me. And does this sound like David? Where's the guy who had a chance to murder Saul, but just cut off a corner of his cloak? This guy who has actually been hunting him down and trying to end his life. Where's that guy? Where'd he go? He's not there. He is furious. And in his rage, he's... Intent not just on punishing Nabal, but his entirely household. If not for Abigail, that's exactly what would have happened. But instead, one of Nabal's servants so comes to Abigail and tells her what has happened. Verse 14, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we didn't miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And this tells you how widely known it is that he was not a good dude. He is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. So he knows. You can't reason with Nabal. He's not listening. He goes to Abigail because she is what? discerning, and wise. So what does Abigail do? These passages here where I just imagine myself, clearly they were prepared for the feast because they have all this food, but I'm like, oh my gosh, how can you make haste to prepare 200 loaves of bread? How, How does that happen? But that's what it says she does. Verse 18, then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five says of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs. Like you couldn't fit that in a suburban probably. I don't know how many donkeys it takes to carry these things out into the wilderness, but she loads them up and, and they go. And what does she do? She said to her young men, go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. Why doesn't she tell him? What would he do? He is a violent and mean man, and she knows exactly what's going to happen to her if he finds out, if she crosses him, because that's just the sort of thing that wives know. But does it stop her? No. Something even worse than Nabal's wrath will happen if she doesn't step in, so she doesn't hesitate. The text says that she made haste. It was urgent, so she didn't waste any time. She gathered up the 200 loaves of bread and all the wine and the figs and the raisins and everything, and she hustled on out of there. She was in a hurry. So verse 20, As she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Who else has made this silly promise a rash vow when they shouldn't have in 1 Samuel? Do y'all remember? What did Saul do? And it almost cost Jonathan his life. He said, if anybody eats anything on this day, they shall surely die. Right? So he made this rash promise, and it was super foolish for Saul to do that. And this is the same kind of promise that David is making. I swear to God, if any of them are left alive by the end of this day, and rash vows are one of those things that are not allowed in the Old Testament. It is against the law. God's law, not, you know, city law, but the law of the Lord to make a vow like this because they're foolish. But what we see the testimony, so so there's the sense that like your words should mean something. When you say something, you follow through with it. And so that's why you don't make a rash vow because your words are going to hold you accountable to it, especially if you call on the name of the Lord to do it. But it is better to break the vow than it is to murder an entire household. So last week we saw him just take a little step off the straight and narrow path when he deceives the priest a little bit, right? Because he was afraid. It was his fear that caused him to sin last week. And he owned up to it. He repented, but it had grave consequences. And this time you see him going completely off the rails, Because of his anger. Like it's not just a little misstep. It is strap on your sword. Let's go kill everybody. Somebody's going to pay for this. He is not playing games. So why? What is it that makes David that leads into this? How do we go from the last chapter where he's all, no, no, I'm not going to kill the Lord's anointed to I'm going to wipe you all out? Well, I think we have to look at him as a person. And I think that's what the Bible wants us to do. He is not this high and lofty, holy king. He is human, and he is flawed just like the rest of us. Think about all that he's been doing. He's been running scared for a long time now. The army has been chasing him. Saul is after him, and he has somehow managed to keep his anger in check. He's he's managed to restrain himself by reminding himself that the Lord has got this. That's what happened last time. But this time he's stretched thin and he snaps at the slightest insult. And I mean, I've never gone on a murderous rampage before, but I have snapped when I've been stretched too thin. I have been blindsided by my own fury over the smallest things. And it's never the thing that sets you off that's the real issue, is it? I have been caught off guard by the um, extremity of my own reaction to things sometimes. Unable to control myself. You know, it's easy to read this and think that we would never react so strongly. But I have never been pushed in quite the way that David was. And I think that if my kids can set me off just, (laughs) just by pushing a few of my buttons then I might have possibly reacted before David did. It might not have taken this much to set me off. The truth is we've all lashed out in anger or we have punished someone with with, with a punishment that is far too severe for the crime. Whether that is, you know, somebody said something that you didn't like and so you just give them the silent treatment, you are dead to me. No, you are not my friend anymore. They're gone from your social media accounts. You are done with them. OK? So there's that, or, you know, dealing with children. There are all sorts of ways that we do this, where we punish people for things that are just tiny with, with the punishment that does not fit the crime. And for me, it's really hard for me to stop once I've started down that war path, because I don't like to be wrong. And I don't like to admit it when I'm being foolish. I'm very self-righteous. I'm super good at justifying my own behavior to myself. But you did this to me. I'm awesome at that. I can tell you all the reasons why I'm right, and they deserve that. All of that to say, I have a pride issue, and I can't back down. This is um, really convicting for me personally to just say, hey, you're not always right. But I think that the thing that is so redemptive and beautiful about this story is the chance that we have here to stop, to redeem it in the moment and change the direction instead of like just continuing down this furious path because once I've started, I just can't stop. To say, whoa, hit the brakes. And to say that you don't have to continue. And, like, you don't have to carry out that vengeful wrath. You can stop. And that's what happened to David. He almost did this really stupid, foolish thing. And it's interesting because in this story, Nabal is the one who's presented as the fool. But who's acting like one? David. David is acting like a fool, but he was quite literally stopped in his tracks by Abigail. And he had a choice. Like, he could choose to hold on to that anger, to let it continue to fuel his self righteous crusade, or he could let it go and repent. And that's what he does. Let's look at her speech and see what exactly it is that she says to change his mind. Verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before him on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is so, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. So the first thing that she does is she offers up her own life. Look look at what she does. She bows down and says, on me, be the guilt. Knowing full well that David intended to kill the people that he actually thought was guilty. So she's willing to assume Nabal's guilt and take on this punishment for a crime that she did not commit. She doesn't say anything about whether or not (laughs) David is in the right or wrong. She just says she steps in and offers herself as a shield so she can protect the people of her household. Now, why would she want to protect a guy like Nabel? Because again, revealing too much of myself here, but if I'm Abigail and my super mean, abusive husband is about to get what's in for him, I might just <laughs> step aside and let that happen. But she does not do that. She steps in, because it's not just Nabel. Who is going to pay? It is, what is it that David says? If I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. <coughs> and as much as she didn't like Nabel, she probably cared a lot for some of the other people. Yes. Just good people in general. Just because he's a fool doesn't mean that they all are. And so she steps in. And it's the selfless action, her willingness to lay down her own life. She who is entirely guiltless in this situation, that gives David pause and clears his vision enough so that he can listen to truth. She does not deserve to die, and David knows it. So, verse 26, this is what she says. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as nable. So the second thing that she does is she reminds him that vengeance belongs to the Lord. She surely knows what kind of king Saul has been. It cannot have escaped her attention. Because what has Saul been doing? He's been on the rampage. He just wiped out the entire city of priests. He planned to lay siege to Keilah when David was there. She knows what has happened, and rumors are probably flying. So Saul is probably a lot like her husband. Saul is also harsh, mean, prone to overreaction. Perhaps just throw the spear at you a little bit. So she knows, if she knows anything, she knows that Israel does not need a king like that. Israel needs a king that's better. And so she calls David to be better than he is. She acts like he's going to do the right thing. She assumes that he's going to. He hasn't done it yet. But what she says is, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt, she acts as if it's true, even though he hasn't. Actually relented yet, and so she's calling him to this higher standard of living than he is at currently. because he is the right and true king, and she wants him to remember that. she wants him to remember who he is, because what he plans to do, this thing that he has let take control of him, it is not the way that a right and true king acts, especially on a king of Israel. Why? Who are these people that he's attacking? They're his people. They're the people of Israel. And so he would be not fighting Israel's actual enemies, but just their perceived enemies, his personal enemies. If he follows through, it will be his undoing. In verse 27, this the rest of her speech. Now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. She has not done anything wrong, but she still begs his forgiveness. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. Is that true? No, he's not perfect. He does sin. He sins greatly. But she's still reminding him that there is a higher standard to which he's called. It shouldn't be that way for Israel's king. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. So you are going to be carried safely in the middle of this bundle in the Lord's arms while he's going to fling your enemies away from you. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord taking vengeance himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. She's saying, don't do this thing. This is not a good thing for you to do. So the third thing that she does here is she offers him a peace offering And a way out. She gives him all that food. She's like, hey, by the way, the thing you asked for, I I did it. Here's all this food for you and your men. And she begs his forgiveness and again reminds him of who he is. Not who he's acting like, but who the Lord has proclaimed him to be. We are all failing to live up to our identity. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. None of us live up to that identity that we have been given, but the Lord has spoken it over us. And so that is who we are because that is who God has said that we are. I did a Beth Moore study a long time ago when I was in college. It was called Believing God. And there were five things. Did you do it? Did we do that here? There were, there were five points. There was one for every, every finger. I don't remember them all. I remember the first two, though. God is who he says he is, and I am who God says I am. The third one is God will do what he says he will do. (laughs) David is Israel's king because God has said he is. And it is his aspiration then to live up to that for the rest of his life. Now, he's going to fail and he's going to falter. But evil and sin is not going to define him. Why? Because he's not harsh and mean like Nabal and like Saul. He's not a fool. He is a man who repents. And that is the difference. He repents. Listen to his response in verse 32 through 35. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from my blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord of God Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly, by morning there had not been left in Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house, see I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition. It is not that David is a better man than Saul or Nabal or that he's sinless or that he's perfect. It is that he repents when he is confronted with his sin. He repeatedly submits himself to the word of the Lord instead of bowing up and rebelling against it. He does not dig in his heels and resist the Lord's will. He bows his head and humbles himself. He does not refuse to admit it when he's wrong. He says, you are so right, Abigail. It's such a good thing that you came this way because I couldn't stop myself but the Lord sent you to stop me. Thank you for coming. And that is what makes David a better king because he humbles himself and confesses it. He confesses his sin. He changes his course and he begs for forgiveness. That's what makes him a man after God's own heart. Nothing else. So... Verses 36-38, Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house. He's carrying on like nothing's wrong, he's drunk. Surprise, surprise. So, he's mean, but he's also drunk. So what's a mean drunk like? She decided not to tell him. She told him nothing at all until the morning light. And the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him. And he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. So we don't know exactly what happened here. Maybe he had a heart attack. Maybe he had a stroke. Something happened. But the text makes it clear that it is God who has done this thing. In his sovereignty, God uses faithful Abigail to avert disaster. And then he strikes down Nabal on his own without David's help. He fights the battle. Isn't that what David told Goliath? The battle is the Lord's. We don't fight with sword and spear, but the Lord fights our battles for us. So when David hears that Nabal is dead and he remembers then and is reminded that God is in control and God has proven himself faithful again, not only has he avenged the slight. But he has also kept David from sinning in a major way. And David decides at this time that it's the perfect time to pick up a new wife. (laughs) And like we talked about earlier, we find out that in addition to Michael, David has already married Ahinoam and now he has Abigail, which is something that makes him more like the kings around them than it does the king of Israel. We, We see throughout all of these chapters, you know, that David... It's like the text is showing us these two gemstones and they're holding up and they're saying, this is Saul. What do you see here? And they're turning it so you can see all the facets of his character, his badly flawed character. He, like if you looked in his diamond, there are for sure flaws in there. Not perfect. And he's holding up Davidson. He's saying, okay, what do you see here? What, what's happening? And so what you see is that you can't just write David off as this. He was a hero is a great and perfect king because just like all of us, he's complex. He's got issues. (laughs) I had a professor who used to say, we had to start every class like this and it drove me crazy, but we said it. It was Christian counseling. It was a mantra and she'd say, I got issues. You got issues. All God's children got issues. We all had to say it together every time. (laughs) Well, David is just like the rest of God's children. He's got issues, and we get to see him. But the beautiful thing is that his issues don't define him. He is defined by the word of the Lord and who God says he is. So, verse 26-1. Here we go again. The Ziphites, they're coming to Saul. They came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill at Hakalah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So here we are. Doesn't this sound familiar? We've done this before, right? Now, if you did the homework... On page 130, you can flip there. It's okay if you didn't. You can see just how similar the stories are from this week and last week's, okay? Between chapter 26 and chapter 24. Okay, these two stories of David sparing Saul's life. So in both the stories, the Ziphites tip Saul off. In both of them, David finds Saul in a vulnerable position. And in, in the first one, he's relieving himself. In the second one, he's dead asleep, In both of them, David's men encourage him to take Saul's life. David takes something from Saul, first a corner of his robe, this time that spear that we've all been wanting to be taken. He takes the spear. In both of them, David refuses to harm Saul because he is the Lord's anointed. In both of them, David pleads his innocence. And in both, Saul asks, Is this your voice, my son David? And in both of them, Saul is penitent temporarily. And in both, David responds to him, Saul speaks a blessing, and they part ways. But I think it's significant that Nabal's story comes right before this. Because what we see when Abishai is his nephew, and he is with him in the camp, and Abishai's like, hey, I can take the spear in like one stroke. That's all it's going to take. And David's like, no, no, we're not going to kill him. He has been freshly reminded of God's sovereignty, that God will intervene and listen to how specific he is in verse 10 either the lord will strike him or he's going to get old and die or he'll go to battle and perish like it doesn't matter how the lord does it but it's not going to be by my hand the lord is going to be the one to do this and so you can see that this experience that he's had with abigail and Nabal has changed him or has at least strengthened his resolve reminded him that the Lord really will do this thing. And there's a myriad of ways that God can do it, but he is going to be the one who, do, who does it. So why do you think that both stories are there? This is one of the questions in the homework. If you're writing First Samuel, why do you decide to include both of them? I mean, aside from the fact that they both historically happened, like isn't just one of them enough? Jen Wilkin says that by including both stories, the author is trying to prove to us beyond a shadow of a doubt that Saul is guilty and David is innocent. So the doubling of the stories demonstrates to us that Saul's word can't be trusted. In case you were wondering at this point, if you should believe him, no, no, you shouldn't. You should not trust Saul. His word means nothing. It's not good. He says one thing, he does another. Despite his promise to let David go in peace and carry on his way, he has not given up his pursuit. And in the end, it is this relentlessness that drives David to leave Israel and go to Gath in the next chapter. But before we go there, I want to point out this parallel that is Really interesting. If you include the story of Nabal, there are three stories of David finding himself in the wilderness, being tempted to take matters into his own hands. Just like Jesus, who was in the wilderness and was tempted by Satan three times to take matters into his own hands. Do you remember what it was that Satan was promising Jesus in those chapters? I'll give you the world on a platter. The kingdom is yours, right? He's promising him something that already belongs to him. But he's promising him the world. Authority, rule, dominion. That's what Satan promises him. But how does Jesus resist? How does Jesus answer every single one of Satan's temptations? With the word of God. He speaks back the truth. And that is exactly the same thing that saves David in each one of these cases. It's holding on to the truth that sustained Jesus in the wilderness. And it's the same thing here that gives David the hope to carry on. His strength is not in his own abilities, it never has been, and it never will be. David's strength is in his reliance upon the Lord his faith in God's faithfulness, and his deference to God's ways. That is where David is at his strongest, when he is confronted with the truth of the Lord and when he is clinging to it and holding on to it for dear life. But when David drifts away from the word, that's when he gets in trouble. That's what happened with the whole situation with Abigail and Nabal. He had like lost out of the truth in in his rage. So as long as he remembers who God is and who he is as God's king, then everything is fine. But it's when he starts to forget who God is and who he is, that things go sideways a little bit. And that's where we find him in chapter 27. So we're going to read verses one through four. David said in his heart, he's talking to himself now, he's stewing over things. Does anyone do that? Like, constantly letting the worries drag you down, but how am I going to do this, how am I going to do that, but if this happens and that happens, then oh my goodness, this is never going to stop, and the things that keep you up at night, David had plenty of things to keep him up at night, so David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul, there's nothing better for me, the promises of God aren't better for me, There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish the son of Maok, king of Gath. We, We met him last week. And David deceived him then. He deceives him now. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. So at this point, David is tired, like so tired of everything. And can you blame him? He's got wives. He's got men. The men have families. And he's been just barely scraping by in the wilderness on the run. And he just can't see how they could possibly carry on, keep going the way that it's been going. So he takes matters into his own hands. And he leaves. The point, I think, that this passage, this whole chapter is trying to tell us is that David lost focus. And when he lost focus, when he took his eyes off of the Lord and started looking at his problems instead, he started acting according to what seemed like it might be a good idea instead of following the Lord. So in the weeks past, we have mentioned that in the Old Testament, when some of the characters do some things that are a little shady, it doesn't really pass judgment on them. You have to read between the lines and infer about what's happening here. And one of the ways that you can tell that something is amiss is when God disappears from the story. And he is not mentioned in this whole episode in Gath at all. So if you remember before David went into the city of Keilah in last week's passages, what did he do? He had the priest with them. They did the umim and thumim thing. He's like seeking the Lord's direction, saying, should I go? Should I do this? And where is that now? So David is not seeking the Lord's direction. He's, he's not there in the decision making. He's definitely not there in David's actions. Because even though David is still fighting Israel's enemies while he's there, He's being less than honorable in the way that he goes about it. He is intentionally deceiving Akish. He's being shady. And he proceeds not just to slaughter people, like entire people, men man, woman, and child, which we don't know if God has told him to do that or not, but I'm thinking not. And he also lies about it so that nobody will know. That's a long, long way from the battle is the Lord's. Let's do this so everybody knows how amazing God is. That's not what's happening here. And in the end, it lands David in a super sticky situation, which we do not get to find out the resolution to in this week's chapters. That comes next week. He is so good at deceiving Achish that Achish like falls for it. Hook, line, and sinker. Now, I don't know if he's just particularly gullible or what, but he thinks that David is his. The conclusion that he draws, verse 12, is that he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. He thinks David is in his back pocket and that there's no way that David can ever come back. And he's so convinced that when he gets ready to go to war with Israel again in chapter 28, verses 1 and 2, he fully expects David to come along. And David can't say anything to the contrary. Not really. What's he supposed to say? Actually, Akish, I'm not on your side. How is David supposed to respond? So he's stuck here between a rock and a hard place. But David is not the only one who is in a bind. Saul is too. The story cuts back over to him. And he's in an even worse position than David because he has finally reached the end of himself. And it is not pretty. Y'all, what we find, he is just so far from where he was at the beginning. Twenty-eight verses three through six. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. So you get the sense that Saul kind of did what was right, like he he followed the law kind of, but he's clearly not devoted to the law because he breaks it a few verses later. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem and Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim, or by prophets. So why doesn't the Lord answer Saul? The Lord has already spoken to Saul. It is not that the Lord has not addressed him. It is that Saul doesn't like the word. He wants the word to be different. Saul is well and truly alone in these verses. Samuel is dead. Saul has killed all the priests, so they can't communicate with the Lord for him. He cut himself off there. And he has finally... In his terror and desperation, tried to seek the Lord, but the Lord will not be found. And I think, well, this is um, disturbing in a sense, because you want to say that nobody is beyond help. But I think we have to look at the way that he approaches the Lord here. Is he repentant? Is he remorseful? Any indication that he might be willing to admit that he has done anything wrong? He is desperate, and he is afraid, and he wants God to change his mind. But there is no indication at all that Saul is repentant and willing to submit. In fact, he's still trying to force God's hand. Because when God doesn't speak, Saul won't take no for an answer. He goes to the unacceptable routes, of trying to communicate with the Lord when all the other ways fail. He is terrified, but God is silent, and he refuses to accept no for an answer. So what does he do? I know. Let me consult a medium. So Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And they're like, Oh, there's one at Endor. Like... Everybody knows where she is. Just over there. It's no secret. Everybody knows. So what do they do? He goes, and she's like, I can't do this for you. Don't you know that's illegal? And um, she hems and haws a little bit, but in the end, she does what he wants her to. But then when she actually calls Samuel up, it's a bit of a shock because did you, you expect him to appear? But he does. She calls Samuel up, and she's shocked by it because who would have thought that the Lord would speak in this way. I don't know what to do with that. I have no deep theological answers for you. I'm just going to leave you with that. God is sovereign even over this. I will say this. The Bible does not say that these things aren't real. It says that they are not the right way. Leviticus 26. If a person turns to mediums and wizards, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Those are pretty harsh words. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us why these ways are wrong. But God has given us his word. And when we seek answers... Outside of it, it's never a good thing. So it's one of those things, I think, where you're not trusting in the way of the Lord. Like This is the way that the Lord has set before you. This is the way that the Lord has said is good, and you're going outside of it. Verses 15 through 19. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I'm in great distress. For the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me? What's the last word that Samuel gave to him from the Lord? For the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy. Don't you know I'm on the Lord's side? I'm on his team, Saul. I always have been. No matter how badly Saul wants to hear a different word from the Lord, the word of the Lord doesn't change. And there's that verse in Isaiah that says the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. The word of the Lord is true. God will do what he says he will do. He does not change his mind. Not only is the kingdom going to David, but Israel is going to lose the battle. And Saul, along with all of his sons, will die. So we end this week with Saul having his last meal as king. And as opposed to his first meal as king, where he sat in the seat of honor beside Samuel. And he got the best portion. And he was honored and revered. Now he's in secrecy and hiding in the house of a medium, receiving his last meal. He is apart from God, without hope in the world. So, where does that leave us? I think these chapters point us, like all of them, to our need for a true and better king. We can't save ourselves no matter how hard we try. Even the best of us go off the rails from time to time, just like David, just like Saul. So our only hope is in falling on the mercy of the one true king. And seeking him while he may be found in the ways that he may be found. Through his word, through worship, and the word that he spoke then is still true now. And we always have that, no matter what. Heed the voice of the one who has spoken, whether we like that word or not. (laughs) To submit when we are convicted by it. To surrender our own will, our own plans, to the authority of God's word and to live our life according to it even when the world is screaming at us that this way is okay too God's word is supreme and it always has been it always will be God's word that seems so crazy to the world around us that is our guiding force and our principle And our source of life. So let's heed it and listen to it and live according to it. Even when we are going off the rails ourselves, um, to listen, to stop in our tracks and to change. It's not too late. Let it change you for the better. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, for the truth that you have given us to. encourage and to convict us lord god i pray that you would change us by it that we would not just read your word and let it go in one ear and out the other lord but that it would take root in our hearts that you would use your word like a two-edged sword in our hearts and our souls cutting out that which does not honor you god i pray that we would be the people who submit to your word to your will and to your authority that you would be honored and glorified in our lives God, in that your word would reign supreme in our hearts. Do this work in us, Lord, that we may bring honor and glory to your name, that others may know you and that we may know you better. And it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.